Yo, partnership alert, partnership alert, partnership alert. Living Corporate has a partnership with LinkedIn Learning, an American massive open online course provider that provides video courses taught by industry experts across a wide array of subjects. Now, the partnership is because Living Corporate has courses on LinkedIn Learning focused on diversity, equity, inclusion for leaders, career professionals, and anyone really looking to upskill themselves and be better allies. So make sure you check out our courses on LinkedIn Learning by clicking the link in the show notes. And let's just say you don't want to do that. You go to LinkedIn Learning on LinkedIn, search Living Corporate. We'll be right there. All right. Peace. What's up, y'all? It's Zach with Living Corporate and updates, house cleaning. Yeah, 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 yeah. So first things first is that we've had a variety of shows, shows, right? So like live shows incorporating video into our media platform that we've been really proud of. So when we talk about the shows, we're talking about the group chat, we're talking about the break room, and we're talking about the access point. The group chat is really a series of panels with black and brown thought leaders talking about DEI in ways that your HR uh, team at your job probably is not going to like. The break room is four black psychologists, psychiatrists talking about mental health, wellness and healing for black folks at work in very frank, unapologetic ways. And then the access point is all about preparing black and brown professionals or aspiring professionals or mid-careerists for the workforce by having conversations that they're just not going to teach you or not going to tell you about in your college classrooms, right? And so each of these shows have incredible hosts and have been and continue to be live shows on our network. So if you go to livingcorporate.tv, you'll actually see those shows. What we also are excited about, again, we're trying to make things accessible, right? Accessibility is, of course, the name of the game, especially when you're talking about content that's centering and amplifying black and brown folks at work. Like we want to make sure that it's available to everybody. And so we're excited about the fact that each of those shows are now also podcasts. That's right. So the access point, the break room and the group chat are all podcasts on the living corporate network. So from a scheduling perspective, that means that you used to hear some of those shows over the weekends. We would play some of those reruns or some of the even some of the newer shows. We will play some of that content on this podcast. Now, each of those shows are their own pods. Right. So make sure that you actually search for those shows everywhere you listen to podcasts and you will be able to check them out now. You can also click the links in the show notes to learn more about those shows and give them five stars on Apple Podcasts. That's what I need y'all to do. Living Corporate will continue to promote and publish Real Talk Tuesdays, See It to Be It on Wednesdays, and then the Tap In with Tristan on Thursdays. All right. So that's not going nowhere. Really excited about the shows that we have. Excited about our network continuing to mature and grow and expand and just learn, right? As we continue to want to make sure that we haven't not only having dope content, but dope content that's accessible to everybody. Now, with that being said, really excited about the guests that we were able to have on Living Corporate today. And the reason why I'm excited about this guest is because of who who we are as a platform was not just like a notion. Right. Like there was actually, you know, other groups and orgs that we looked at 
to really say, man, like who inspires us and what are we trying to be? And what's really exciting is like, as we've continued to grow, we're able to actually see, we're actually able to meet the organizations that inspired us to even be here. Like, that's really cool. It's kind of like when you kind of meet your heroes, right? And so there's a couple of those organizations that stick out to me. And one of those organizations is Blavity. So Blavity, for those who don't know, uh, Blavity is a lifestyle platform for black people. So you think about blogging and just different types of media lifestyle around just like what it means to just exist and navigate this world as a part of the African diaspora. Blavity is huge in that. Blavity has a bunch of different like brands under its umbrella, but they're all focused on being black, right? And navigating the world. And so I'm excited about the fact that um, we're able to actually have Tamara Gordon, executive director of Blavity.org. For those who don't know, Blavity.org drives black economic advancement, wealth creation, and business ownership forward through entrepreneur fellowship programs featuring grants, education, and mentorship. They just launched their inaugural fellowship program supporting 12 black founders, and they're actively looking and continuing to look for ways to impact uh, black community for economic empowerment. So I'm really excited about this conversation that we're getting into. And before we do it, before we talk to Tamara, I want to make sure that y'all tap in with Tristan. After that, we'll get to it. What's going on, Living Corporate? It's Tristan, and I want to thank you for tapping back in with me as I provide some tips and advice for professionals. Today, I want to talk about why I think you need to show up as your real self throughout your job search. When I'm working with clients, I always get questions about hiding a certain part of themselves, their identity, or their career pathway. These questions take many forms, including, should I use my middle name instead of my real first name since it's better received? Should I remove the dates from my education section so I don't have to deal with age discrimination? Should I downplay the amount or years of experience I have so a company won't feel intimidated and give me a shot? Should I cut my natural hair or take out my braids before my interview? I could go on for days with questions like this. All of these questions are completely valid. We know that having a distinctly black sounding name on your application reduces the likelihood of hearing back from an employer by 2.1 percentage points. We also know that 61% of people over 45 reported having seen or experienced age discrimination in their careers. I've seen companies not interview a candidate or let a candidate go because they don't want to pay them what they're actually worth. And a 2020 study found that black women with natural hairstyles are less likely to get interviews than white women or black women with straightened hair. The data clearly backs up these concerns that job seekers bring up to me. But I want to present you with a question. If a company wants to discriminate against you because of your name, age, amount of experience, hair, or any other piece of you, is that a place you want to work? I often see black and brown professionals shrink themselves in some way to get a role. Once they land it and start to get comfortable, they begin to unveil pieces of their real selves, and that's where the problems start. One day, you show up in braids, and the next, you're having a conversation with your boss in HR on quote-unquote professional hairstyles. I've seen more seasoned candidates try to hide their age, only to land the interview and not receive a call back because the interviewer eventually saw the candidate was older during that process. I've seen people minimize their experience to secure a position, but then were disappointed when they received an offer amount that didn't align with what they should be getting paid. Where am I going with this? 
It's simple. Job searches and interviews go both ways. As much as companies or organizations are utilizing tools and tactics to weed out candidates, you should be using what you have at your disposal to weed out companies and organizations. If they are going to treat you like this in the hiring process, imagine what working with them on a daily basis would be like. Now, if you're in a position where you need a job immediately to pay the bills and you feel like you need to play the game to get there, I will never fault you for doing what you need to do to provide for yourself. What I'm talking about here is my own personal philosophy after seeing how things play out, both in my experience and the experiences of those I coach. But if you are in a position where you're tired of not being able to show up as yourself, it's time to accept that in order to find the right fit, we're going to have to stop hiding throughout the job search process and utilize these traits as a way to weed out companies who don't deserve us. Does that mean we may reduce the amount of prospects we have? Yes, I can't deny that. The data is right there and the numbers don't lie. I don't know about you, but that's a risk I'm willing to take if it means I can find a place to work where I'm comfortable being me. This tip is brought to you by Tristan of Layfield Resume Consulting. Check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Layfield Resume or connect with me, Tristan Layfield, on LinkedIn. Living Corporate is brought to you by The Access Point. The reality is, this is the largest influx of black and brown talent corporate America has ever had. And as a result, a variety of talent entering the workforce are first-generation professionals. The other reality? Most of these folks aren't learning what it means to navigate a majority white workplace in their college classes. Enter the Access Point, a live weekly web show within the Living Corporate Network that gives black and brown college students the real talk they need and likely haven't heard elsewhere. Every week, our hosts and special guests are dropping gems, so don't miss out. Check out The Access Point on livingcorporate.tv. Tamara, how you doing? Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. So happy to be here. Look, I, it's an honor. I'm really excited. Now, look, like most black folks in the world, um, you know, I've known about Blavity for a while, but I, I'm less aware of of Blavity.org. So can you share a little bit more about Blavity.org and your journey and being their, their executive director? Yeah, I'm so happy to. So Blavity.org essentially is a sister organization to Blavity Inc., which has been around for the last seven years specifically to support and elevate Black people. And the founders of Blavity Inc., founded Blavity.org and they chose the wealth gap and we chose ownership and entrepreneurship. Um, and I think the real differentiator is that we also chose joy and like dared to think what's possible when black people create from this place of joy. The vision of Blavity generally is let's like, let's see all black people happy, right? Like how do we share our news? How do we share our stories? What do we do from this lens of like abundance and we're okay and not the trauma informed news that we see day to day. And now we get the opportunity in this newly formed nonprofit we launched earlier this year to say, now, if we gave black people the permission to actually like operate from that place of joy, what, what could they do? And I'm a mom, I've got a five-year-old son and my husband's a Morehouse man. And so, you know, they always about the entrepreneurship and, and creation as just like part of their DNA. But he tells my son every day, he's like, yo, we're creators, right? Like we build things, we're capable. and the notion really behind Blavity.org is to like consider that in the full family structure. Like what if our brilliance and excellence and like dope blackness that everyone, you know, wants to emulate 
could be sustained? And like, what if we shifted the stories about ourselves in that? And so like we picked entrepreneurship and I think part of the value that I bring to the organization is that I have been in access work for the last 15 years. Uh, my son is named after Camden, New Jersey. I, I lived and worked in Camden. I have students who I just left too early. And I was like, if I have a baby, I'm gonna name them after my original babies. And the work has been in just like, how do we open up spaces so that while I'm sitting at the table, like I'm holding five seats open. Like I get into a room, I'm bigging up everybody else. Um, and so this the whole idea of the journey now is like, how do I keep the doors open that Blavity Inc. has like blown open and held our blackness in them? Because that's also a huge part, like to be able to not just come in black, but like sustain and hold your blackness in that space is huge. And like part of why I was so excited about Blavity, the brand. But now we get to extend that to say, like, we're going to create a seat. Y'all are going to sit in the seats and then y'all are going to hand those seats down. Like this has to be sustainable. This has to be generational. Um, and wealth is more than just the money that we're accumulating. It's all of our behaviors. It's our relationship to it. And so .org now is a vehicle among a lot of others that are in this space and doing the work, uh, but really leveraging that power of blavity and black gravity to say like, what's, what's possible if, if we're good and we're doing this from a place of being good? There's so much that you said there like that I just... You know, the first thing around just like even just an abundance mindset opposed to a scarcity mindset. And and then everything else you said, like, the, just seemed like just such a natural, like, expression of that, right? This idea of sharing spaces, increasing seats at the table or bringing along, lifting as you climb, you know, it's so often we were just talking offline about my nine to five job in addition to this nine to five job. But anyway, I was just living corporate, but um, <laughs> but you know, there's there is often this idea, especially when you see black folks in these like really corporate spaces, um, there can be an idea of one, there can only be one and two, that the game is to be sold and not told. And it's like like we we're not going to really be able to really get further if we're not really willing to share. I, I, you know, I've we've talked about this several times on Living Corporate is, you know, I talked to several other folks, leaders at the Green Lining Institute and um, and, and other like activists and things of that nature. And talk about the fact that really like we as a black, we as a people are not going to be able to practice the same like capitalistic patriarchal like systems that white folks perpetrated on us if we want to collectively rise, right? Like we're going to have to like radically shift our thinking and just practice with one another if we're really talking about like shifting and changing um, our communities and changing our, you know, sh shifting the culture for the better. Um, you know, and to your point around access, you know, I feel like there's this common there's a conversation that constantly cycles around the black community. And I'd say black community with quotation marks, um, but black community and financial education. Right. So like this idea that like, man, if I just teach these extremely poor people to stop buying Jordans and cell phones and invest in stock, then they'll be they'll be wealthy. Right. Like it's it's paternalistic to me. It's I find it wildly offensive. It's also simplistic and, and pretty dumb. Right. I'm, I'm curious, though, like, you know, you you said the word which just like activated me even further, like. I'd love for you to expand more when you say access and like even just some of the work that you did before Blavity.org, like, you know, what do you mean by access? And then and then I have a follow up question about what Blavity.org is doing. But I'll start with just like, can you unpack the concept of access? Yeah, this is such a good question. And you said two things. You said access and you said abundance. And so I want to just sort of hold those two things together because this notion of 
we shouldn't have Jordans or like if we didn't stock our closets with whatever we buy, that somehow that would translate to wealth is crazy. And peeling back the access, like part of our barrier to access, part of I think the the symptom of not having access is that we remain in this space of scarcity. We remain in this like in the struggle and the hustle and just the day to day. Like I'm just trying to make it to tomorrow. And black people in general like what access then provides us is a space to luxuriate and like a space to enjoy the things that we've now afforded ourselves and i think about everybody else right like any other version intersection of person you make it to a place where you can buy the jordans you want like that doesn't then mean you don't have wealth my wealth affords me the things that bring me joy that that you know that represent abundance to me and so so often we don't have that right like we're always in this place of like i don't have i don't have but i need to look like i have and part of that are the narratives that are handed down right so i think about the work leading up to blavity and also like what we're doing with the entrepreneurs that we're serving i'm thinking about the generational hand downs right and black people have been handed down a whole lot of nonsense right and um, at the root of it, trauma, wealth, and stories. Narratives are like the three things that we receive hand over foot. Every generation, we're passing a piece of that down. Some of it's not as much as others, but like we have received a lot of false stories, a lot of false narratives, and we've received a lot of trauma, right? And so that informs our relationship to wealth, the way we're willing to talk about it, the way we're even willing to think about it, right? And so wealth is not my access to cash, right? And like, can I buy this thing? Wealth is my ability to enable the next generation to be a little bit further than I was when I started. And so that mindset, like that narrative starts at the dinner table, like black folks are not talking about how much we make or what our house costs or what this was like, we don't, we want to talk about like bridging the wealth gap, but we're scared to talk about money. And so where do we start to infuse some of these and some of these behaviors so that we're passing down narratives of wealth and behaviors of wealth to actually equip ourselves to then pursue it. At the end of the day, like our wealth should allow us to get the things that we want to get. We deserve at least that. And like Jordan and all like all of the Jordan brand in general is about black excellence, right? So like naming them as a thing, like that's a representation of who we are. Michael Jordan like puts that and infuses that into his brand long before it was cool to do that. Um, and probably in retaliation to a lot of folks who were saying, you can't just be black, like you're Michael Jordan, right? Um, so there's something really special about our relationship to Jordan in general. But if we bridge that relationship across all of the things that we do, and then think about how we make it sustainable, like that's, that's the wealth piece, right? It's not that I'm gonna spend all my money and I can't take it with me. And so um, I'm just gonna let it go. Like you have to think about, so what will that mean for my five-year-old? Like what, how I set up my life, how I move, the things I talk about, set him up in his relationship with money. He's five. And so the car that we drive and how we like coach and talk to him about his relationship to money matters. Like that mom and dad work hard, right? Like we work we save there's a plan for that and we've built a team around us and i think that's the like that's the real part because we have sensationalized and glorified what it means to be self-made and the struggle and but but i but i got these like i got these fours i guess those are jordans in my generation but like i love the fours <laughs> but like i i got the new whatever 
that be the stamp of approval versus COVID hit, my business is being impacted. And if the homie Trump didn't have to pay taxes last year, like small businesses that are run by one person should not have had to pay taxes last year. Or like there's a way for us to be navigating the systems and leaning on folks that are that are in the community um, and really leveraging like other black people to navigate this and not making it so faux pas to talk about that will help us change our relationship to wealth so that then we're mirroring behaviors that actually get us there. We should have stock in Jordan, right? Like we, we can have both. This is not about one or the other. It's just about recreating that narrative within ourselves. You know, it's interesting. So when you talk about when you talk about access, I I, I know um, that Blabby.org does launch their inaugural fellowship program supporting twelve Black founders. Talk to me about you know as you as you continue to unpack access for us, like talk to me about how this program drives and supports access. Yeah, so we we were lucky enough to get a partner in Adidas earlier this year that uh, helped us launch our program. So our inaugural class is graduating at the end of October. So that's super exciting. We have 12 businesses, a total of 13 fellows across those 12 businesses. Um, and part of the task, like part of the access work for us was not saying like, oh, we're just gonna open up all the doors and do all the things, right? I'm a, non I'm a nonprofit at heart. My career has been a nonprofit and the gift and the curse of being nonprofit is that when we think about access is that we got to do all the things ourselves. Right. I think it's still that like self-made is me. And if I'm in this community, then I have to wrap around them and do all of the things. And I think the really strategic part of Blavity.org was just like, Yo, what is it? What's ours to do in this? Like, what space do we take up? How do we want to show up in closing the black wealth gap or like doing our part in it? We're not going to close it right but we're going to make it a lot easier for then the baton to be passed to the next person who picks it up and works to to close the gap um and so the access for us came comes about in three ways right the vehicle that we're using is black gravity right that's what blavity stands for so what it was founded on it's that power of like all of us sitting around the water cooler around when we were in the office, but like that power, when you walk into a store and you're like, oh, there's five black people right there. Let me go. Let me go and talk or like walk by that aisle, right? That there's something really powerful in our connection. And so one, it's, just, it's taking the name, right? It's taking black gravity and saying like, what happens if we're just all in a room talking about the same things, being vulnerable, asking the questions and creating a safe space to do that in? So the first vehicle was that one. The second one was just education. It was just like, all right, what are we equipped to, to train people on? Like, what are we equipped to give them answers to? And we don't know what we don't know. And our founders, they are young, they are accomplished. They have figured some stuff out so much early on. And so the benefit of the hindsight that Morgan, Aaron and Jeff can provide to our founders specifically, but anyone on the platforms they're on, um, gives them the platform to excel right like they get to know that early they get to experience the stages that morgan aaron and jeff experienced in creating blavity to then inform their own business practices uh, and then we work with our partners like adidas and comcast and give them access to professionals that are in the space um, who have created big brands like ivy park and um, and yeezy right to say like here's what i do so we're taking that access that we've created through the media and, and Blavity piece and offering that up to folks in a really open and transparent way. Um, 
And the third vehicle to access is the amplification, right? Like if we are on stage and we have millions of followers hitting our web pages, coming to the Afrotech conference, looking at our social media, then our job is to bring others on stage with us, right? And so how do we use the platform that has been created to say like, you come too, or hey, local baker, like we're using you. We're not going to Dunkin' Donuts or some conglomerate, right? Like we are walking, the walk, we are talking the talk and also showing and using the stage to re-amplify the work that's going on, right? So for the, the 12 businesses that we worked with this past year, we generated over 150 million impressions across nine different brands that Black folks don't usually have access to, like Wall Street Journal, Journal and Reader's Digest. And we had a food product featured in TechWire, which like never happens. Uh, so that amplification vehicle is so important because if folks don't know about us and they can't invest in us, they can't hire us, they can't sele select us as their diversified supplier, right? Which like is the only word coming up. So that's, you know, we started, we're six months in, we're figuring out how to scale what it is that we're doing, but really leveraging those three points of access since that's like the thing that we know Blavity can do really well. I mean, it's just so smart. And it's it's also inspiring because, like you said, like Blavity is not old. Like Blavity is around seven years, right? And so, but it it took, they took their model and all these relationships and branding and marketing and like just awareness building uh, that they were able to do in those seven years and then like are effectively leveraging it to figure out, okay, we have these relationships and we have this capital in this space. And what are we now going to do, you know, to affect change? And so that's really, really exciting. You know, um, to the other part around just sharing, like even that, like we said, like, you know, like there's a small business here, there's a local business here, like, you know, amplification is so invaluable now, especially when you think about like, I don't just seems like the algorithms are the new gatekeepers, Tamara, like that's really like, you know, that you can put out really dope stuff and like literally only like five or six people ever know about it. And it has nothing to do with your, with the quality of your content. Um, or the, you know, like the, the substance or the, the amount of like, it's just, this is a bunch of dope stuff that like people even now, like I can tell you like how many people haven't heard of living corporate. And like, we've had, I mean, Tamara, like we've had a hundred plus brands on, we just did a mobilization with Pfizer. We just were in the middle of doing a partnership with live ramp. Like we have, uh, we have done, but, but you know, for those grass for, I'll say for me is like, just as like a bootstrap founder, someone who does not have whatever and who, and who doesn't really spend a lot of money on like ads you know, it takes, it just, it takes more. It takes more than just putting out dope content. Like, I feel like even like 15, 15, 16 years ago, or just like when I Instagram and like some of these before the, again, I'm just saying again, before the algorithms changed, it was like, you know, like you could post something and it would go to the top of your feed and everybody going to see it. And so, you know, even if you only have 17 followers or a hundred followers, you're going to get the reactions and the impressions. But again, things have just changed. So, Salute to y'all. That's super dope. Um, so let me ask you this, right? Like you talk, we're talking about right now, we're talking about closing the black wealth gap. We're talking about um, actions to take in that. And there's, there's all types of different, you know, levers in that regard. I'm curious, what do you see the future of investment in black creatives, black communities, um, black programs being like for this decade? Like, are there any trends or anything that you've seen that gives you hope or that gives you anxiety? 
Yeah, at first, I just I just want to say congrats. Like getting partnerships like that is huge and it takes a lot of work, especially for our businesses. So I just want to name that that's dope and Thank congratulations. You. Appreciate it. Um, and then I think the call to action here, right? Like to answer the question around philanthropy, the trend right now is black is cool, right? And it, we're, we're in and folks are redirecting a whole lot of dollars to to black organizations and black serving organizations. Having been in the nonprofit world on the philanthropic side of the house, I also know that there's there's ways that those dollars need to be spent or seen, right? And those old those don't go to organizations typically that are small or up and coming that don't have the data or statistics or long-term metrics to back up why they should get an investment, right? But those businesses, right? You think about 96% of black run businesses, entrepreneurs or solopreneurships, right? They are one person doing all of the things, figuring all of it out. So when grants open up with big institutions and foundations, when new CSR departments pop up, you've got the COO operations custodian trying to figure out how to also access the funds that may be available or not, because I'm actually too small to even qualify for them. So I think while folks are really set in good intentions right now, because I, I really do believe that, that folks are like, okay, I've got, again, access to the capital and the resources that could create some generational impact, but I, I don't know who to give that to. And it's easier to give to the ones that I know, right? And that's not a knock on the big ones. They've been around a long time and all of the names that come immediately to mind, like they, de they deserve the resources too. And it is usually the smaller organizations that have been at the grassroots level who know their communities that are being missed, that are not getting, like they're just never on the radar of philanthropy. And so I think the invitation in some of the trends, you know, before this coolness of giving black and doing the black thing sort of fizzles out. Um, and I, I heard I heard Killer Mike say that we've got like a five or seven year runway post George Floyd. Um, around like black being cool right and so we're we're a year past that we're 18 months into that um so the call to action here for philanthropy is like one just consider folks that you don't normally consider and that might not be you you may need to go to organizations like yours you need to go to organizations like mine and say who else do i go to like how can you put me on to those i should put on right and allow some of those connections rather than taking on the the taking taking on the bird taking on the lift yourself because you're not as informed as those of us who are on the ground doing it um and they need to just invite new narratives around their giving i think that's the other call to action is that there's a way philanthropy runs that we know is not inclusive which is why it has changed or why this trend now exists you're gonna have to consider what that narrative now looks like and feels like um, and mitigate some of those barriers that have always exist for black organizations seeking investment. It, to your point, it's an interesting season, right? And I, and I realize, you know, like even like just when it comes to like black um, experience in America, like it's not, it's not linear. Like there's a certain cyclical nature to it. Um, and so to your point, right around like this runway, I agree. I agree with about like that five to seven. I think seven years would be wild. Like I can't imagine, but maybe. Um, certainly I agree with like on the five years, like, and so what are we doing in this moment? We also have aspirational allies, um, folks who listen to Living Corporate, um, individuals who 
you know, them may just may just represent themselves, but sometimes they represent large institutions. Like, what role do they play in this space in this work at this time? And then, like, if you were to give them, I don't know, like two or three things, or however many numbers of things that they can really be doing to help um, and really invest and pour back into Black entrepreneurs. Uh, black communities, historically impoverished or excluded spaces, like what are some of the things that those aspirational allies, be they individuals or institutions could do? Such a good question. I just, I had a conversation with a really good friend of mine. She's also a mentor. She's a CEO at a national association for black accountants. And she completely shifted my perspective on the word ally which also has become part of the trend, right? Even in philanthropy and and investments generally. And what she does is she invites potential partners or aspiring partners to be accomplices. Um, And she's shifted and like really worked hard to shift that language because if you're an accomplice, right? Like you're doing this right next to me. Like you're in the weeds. You're not watching me and like holding my hand and saying like, I got your back. When it gets hard, I'll pick you up. It's like, no, no, no we are in this, we are doing it at the same time. And like, we are invested in this case in black liberation together. So I think one is like, aspire to be an accomplice. I don't I don't need any more allies. I don't need anybody cheering me on, asking me what books to read. Like I need you to be in it with us, redirecting your finances, redirecting your resources, even when it's complicated, right? And like, I think that is the challenge. And so if I'm offering practical advice, it's that aspirational accomplices, they need to choose black businesses, right? And it's harder to do that. Like in the days prior to COVID when you're ordering lunch for folks like Panera, whatever I can get that's easy and frequent and and there, I do that, right? And the gap that exists in our wealth and within the system is that we've created in a lack of access, a lack of ease, to getting to black businesses. And so we don't do it. It's just not easy. I'm going to order on Amazon. I'll get my supplies from here. I use vendors that everybody else uses because that's what's always been there. So I think first is that we have to like commit as accomplices to choose black, right? Even when it's really, really hard. Um, And that's their vendors. That's banking institutions. I spent the last year and a half running a business with my husband, working in partnership with Liberty Bank and Trust in New Orleans. Um, and, you know, them and One United Bank are the top two banks, two black banks in the nation, and are still only 50, 60 million dollars when Wells Fargo is worth several trillion, right? So we have to think about when we reroute to our institutions, like they're still behind, like even the top of whatever they are are still behind. Word, word. And yeah. our corporate card, like they're practically your vendors, your banks, your corporate cards, your event locations, um, and de- where you buy your clothes, where you get jewelry. Like you don't need jewelry from Target. You want a ring, you can actually get it from like a local person who's making that for you. Um, I think that's one. It's just like get really intentional about or intentional in that commitment and then hire folks whose job to do that. I've spent the last 18 months mapping out ecosystems across cities, big cities, L.A., Chicago, Atlanta, saying like, here are the black businesses in your area. There is no excuse. You can use them. Right. If you are a nonprofit, here's how here's how you do that. If you're a 
So that's one. I think the second one is um, similar to uh, some of the notes from the last question is just like, you have to spend time with the black organizations in your community, right? So if I'm a corporate aspiring accomplice, then I actually need to like be here. So like we've got SoFi Center coming into Inglewood and we got all this stuff happening in LA. And I'm not too sure how many of those folks are like hanging out in Inglewood and Lamert Park and like really understanding the, the richness of the culture and businesses that live there. And so we need to be in relationship with one another. And COVID has made that hard. I think it's disconnected us as humans, like even more so. And so we're gonna have to figure out how to reconnect and like really get to know one another again, um, especially because we know that black businesses are not easily accessible. Right? When the pandemic hit last year, black businesses closed at triple the rate that every other business did because the gap that was needed to sustain was about $10,000. On average, black business, black small businesses only have about $9,000 of reserve. Comparing to majority white businesses, they had about $120,000, $130,000 in reserve, right? So these are not big numbers, but when you talk about the impact of last year. But difference, that's a huge it, difference. Nine G's is like, years. yeah, nine G's. That's like, I mean, you have, that's a thread, it's right? A like that's a, that's a thread. Wow. 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 When you think and when you think about the just the exacerbation of that gap, right? Like mm -hmm. if we're gonna undo systemic racism, like that's that's trendy. We've been hearing about that. If we're gonna close the wealth gap, like right. it is not going to be done through like one chapter of NAACP. And they are dope. That is not a knock. I'm out here. I want nope. all nope. black orders. Right. But like right. the local cleaners, the coffee shop, like the local black economies, the barber shops, like staples of the community have to be invested in and they were disproportionately impacted. Um, so just, you know, just sort of wrapping a bow on the idea of like aspirational accomplices, we've just, we've got, we've got to choose it. And knowing that it's hard, knowing we got to figure it out. Well, no, you know, it, and something, so I, I love the fact that you didn't even go into, again, like what excited me about, as we were talking, you know, the, the prospect of having you on the show, uh, what excited me as I looked at your profile was I knew that when I talked to you, I wasn't going to get like these like really can pedantic or like insultingly shallow answers. Right. Because like in nothing that you said, did you say, hey, college degrees is going to make us rich. Right. Like we had a whole conversation. This was like a couple of years ago on Living Corporate. We were talking about uh, the connection between education and wealth generation. And it's like, you know, there's a study out there for those who don't know. I put in the, sh the link in the show notes called Umbrellas Don't Make It Rain. While staying and working hard isn't enough for Black Americans, and it talks about the fact that actually the household wealth gap increases. With the yes, yes. So like you don't have people out there, Black folks out there, with like bachelor degrees, and the household wealth is like twenty some thousand dollars. You know, compared to your, the white counterpart, which would be literally sometimes ten x that. Yep. And so you're, it's it's more it's it's not not only is it not that in terms of like the what's going to help close that gap. It's about practicing and operating communally. Like it's investing and participating in the stuff that isn't sexy and cool, like a dry cleaners or an ice cream shop or someone, hey, look at my glass. I need to go get some new glasses. Like me, like, let me go check them. You know, let me see what my options are. Yep. So yeah, I, you know, look, Tamara, this is dope, right? And I, and I knew this, that we were going to be able to have a great conversation that frankly, we would we could probably talk for a lot longer. 
Um, but I'm gonna wrap this up because you put a bow on it, so I'm gonna tap the bow. All right. So before we wrap up out of here, though, any parting words or shout outs you have? There's a couple, and you name something. So I'm just um, I'm gonna say it. My background has been in higher ed access, all that work, and there's a whole nother conversation that we could have about college being a wealth decision and not the emotional mm. sort of one that we think about it as, and what that would do for the wealth gap. So um, I just want to name that like. College degree, yes, I think we need access to education. Black folks definitely do. We can also attack that as part of our wealth decisions. Um, so just circling back there, but thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, I was so excited for this conversation. Um, I'm excited to sort of like put Blavity's story out there and less about me and my work and like Blavity as an org, but because what I think we're doing is so important to how we mobilize the investment in generational wealth, right? And we're not going to do it by ourselves, but like the goal here is to be partners that will be good ancestors. And I had a friend say that to me and I was just like, yes, all I want to do is work well enough that on the other side, I represent a good ancestor. And I want to be in community with folks like that. And so I, I just want to name that like if, if folks are working hard out there and wanting to put that out in the world in a way that will make them good ancestors on the other side of this, like consider Blavity.org your vehicle to that. We are Blavity.org. And so if you want to look for more information, that is also our website. Um, and then I'd be remiss to say that if anyone hasn't uh, doesn't have plans to attend the Afrotech conference, which is coming up in November, Blavity Inc. is putting on Afrotech conference again in the virtual world this year. But .org got a chance to host a conversation with two amazing Black leaders. They happen to be women, but they are also just it was that it was like one of the highlights of of my week They're uh, respectively from Bank of America and National Association for Black Accountants. Um, and it's a conversation to not be missed. So if you can't attend the whole conference, I just invite you to come to the social impact panel because it's a it's a really dynamic conversation um, and you get a little bit more insight into Blavity.org and how we hope to show up in the world. Come on now, Tamara. Uh, but I've appreciated this so much. No, Tamara, thank you so much. So y'all, y'all heard all the stuff right here, right? So blavity.org. So look, I leave very, very little wiggle room for y'all to have any excuses. We're gonna put the link in the show notes. All right. So if you're driving or something, I'm not asking you to pull out your phone and look at your phone right now, please, for the okay. sake of whoever's in the car with you, please don't. But pull over to the side of the road, put your emergency has the lights on, you know, put on some shade, and then click the link in the show notes to learn more <laughs> about Blavity.org, Blavity Inc., and Afrotech and all the stuff that's going on, okay? So, Tamara, it's been great. Well, look, we consider you a friend of the show. As, as Blavity.org continues to grow, y'all do what y'all are doing. Please know y'all come back over here, all right? Like, we, we center and amplify black and brown folks at work, and we do that by having dope conversations with people like yourself. Y'all, I will catch y'all soon. Tamara, talk to you soon. Thank you so much. Take care. Peace. And we're back. Yo, shout out to Tamara Gordon. Really appreciated our conversation. Excited about uh, our community continuing to look for ways to leverage the influence that they have to then do other things, right? Like, what does it mean to just like kind of sit in your same space with the wealth that you're accumulating? And sometimes it takes somebody else to help you understand that you do have something here that can then be leveraged into something else. And so I just really am inspired and encouraged and frankly affirmed 
when I see other platforms recognize what they're doing in one space and then try to expand and do other things, right? Like we have this one life to live. It's important that we try to make as much of an impact as possible. So again, shout out to Blavity, the entire family over there and specifically shout out to Blavity.org. Make sure y'all click the links in the show notes to learn more. Um, Hey, listen, y'all, I continue to say every week, the best thing y'all can do is give us five stars on Apple Podcasts, right? Give us five stars on Apple Podcasts, click the link, check out the merch, drop a support um, dollar or two, right? We have like little ways that you can actually be like a sponsor um, or just like give and contribute to our network as we continue to center and amplify black and brown folks at work. It's actually through y'all's support that we're able to continue forward. We have a ton of folks over here on our team creating really, really great content. And that is only possible because of listeners like you. That's right. That's like how a PBS flip. You know how PBS would do that? That's true, though, really. Until you're on this side, you don't really appreciate that, like, you can't really go too far without actual engagement, buy-in, and support from your audience. And so I just want to thank y'all and continue to encourage y'all to continue to support us. All right? Till next time, y'all, this has been Zach. Take care of yourselves. Be gentle with others. But first off, you got to be gentle with yourself. Love y'all. Peace. Living Corporate is a podcast by Living Corporate LLC. Our logo was designed by David Dawkins. Our theme music was produced by Ken Brown. Additional music production by Antoine Franklin for Musical Elevation. Post-production is handled by Jeremy Jackson. Got a topic suggestion? Email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and living-corporate.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.